And so I respected him and I liked him as a person. And so he was like, oh, I was very paisay. You know, I was very embarrassed to ask you for money. Oh, uh, you okay, know, okay. I don't want to ask for friends. I want a family. I want to ask from strangers. And I was like, whoa, 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 let me get in. And so okay. I managed to kind of get some education. Oh, so there's many your reputation actually, in this case, it didn't help you, right? Because it didn't help me. As a friend, he, he feels paisy to ask you. Although yeah, you, yeah. you are the most obvious person that he should yeah, be asking. Yeah, and yeah. you're actually interested to invest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And, uh, you know, I was just like... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Chill with TFC. This is a show where we talk to the quirkiest and geekiest minds to find out how they think about money and life. My name is Andrew and today I'm chilling with Jeremy Ao. Here's a podcast, it's called Brave Southeast Asia Tech. And Jeremy is also a VC at Monk Hill Ventures, where he scouts and nurtures the businesses that might transform our lives. Jeremy is also a serial founder and angel investor in over 20 startups across Asia, which is why on today's episode, we'll be putting him and his Harvard MBA to the test to answer this question. Should you invest in your friends and family's businesses? And don't forget to stay till the end for our Money Insight segment to learn what Jeremy's best and worst investments are. Congrats on the book. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, it was a pleasure um, writing a book, Brave 10, the Singapore mm-hmm. edition. It's an anthology of inspiring uh, journeys across Southeast Asia and Singapore tech. So it was nice to be able to donate the profits to charity, but it was helpfully inspire the next generation of founders. Yeah, so it's stories about founders and you as a VC, you've worked with several founders, you talk to them. So today we're going to talk about something rather interesting about whether you should invest in your friends and family's businesses. And if on the flip side, you're trying to raise funds from your friends and family, like how should you go about doing it? What's mm-hmm. your personal experience with that? When you started your business back then, now you're more... VC, if I'm not wrong. Yeah. Or when you started, like, have you raised funds from friends and family before? Yeah. Or you went straight to the VC route? Mm. <laughs> well, you know, I've been, you know, obviously a student, mm. a soldier in national yeah. service. <laughs> I've also been a management consultant. And then after that, I built two companies, uh, which was one was a social enterprise. Mm. Uh, and the second was being a VC-backed startup, right? From zero to pre-seed, a seed, a series A uh, to eventually sail before finally becoming a VC. And so I think it's been interesting to really have that experience of, you know, fundraising twice, <laughs> you know, one a social enterprise, one a for-profit education tech business. And both experiences were quite eye-opening because I think it really shows you what you had to be prepared for. Um, and obviously the understandable concerns that people have, right? Because they're entrusting you to do something crazy, which is With to build up a new business. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, Setting up a business is crazy if you think about it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in today's world, you know, there's so many st- stable jobs. There's so many like steady paychecks. Why set up a business, right? And I think being able to create a business that encapsulates that change to the status quo is difficult. And I think it's understood rightfully by the market that it's difficult, right? There's a high chance of failure. Lots of failures. Exactly. Yeah. Like, give us betting on your paycheck. Like, how much would I pay for your next month paycheck? I know exactly how much it's going to be. But would your company be around in one year? You know, that's a very tough question all the time. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between raising funds from VCs and raising funds from friends and family? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the... the Is it easier? <laughs> or in fact harder? <laughs> Which side, you know? Uh, well, I think first of all, the fundamental question is what kind of business are you building, right? Mm. So are you building a technology startup that has that pathway and mechanism to eventually become a billion dollar company? And when you say a billion dollar company, it means on average... It means that you're generating $100 million of revenue and having a public market multiple of 10x, right? So 100 mil revenue per year times 10 equals a billion dollar company. And are you planning to do that within 10 years, right? And if you say yes to all those things, then you should go out of venture capital because they are there and looking for people like you who have the ambition and hopefully the capability to be able to do that uh, within that time frame. For everybody else who is building a business, maybe you're thinking about slow and steady, you're thinking about more of a lifestyle, sustainable business. Mm. 
or you're looking for a business that generates cash flow, then the VC route is not really there for you. Mm. That being said, both of these types of companies will often start out with family and friends first. And uh, I think that was my experience uh, starting out because at the end of the day, you're explaining, I think, two different things, right? One is why the world needs this solution, which is, I think, the very intellectual piece. And the second part is why I am building this product, Mm. right? The founder market fit. Why do I care about this thing? And so there's a very interesting dynamic where across your family and friends who is listening to you, they are definitely processing that, right? Which is, do I believe that the world needs this? And do I believe that you can actually Mm. build this? Because at that moment, when you're out raising money from family and friends, normally it's a very small check. It could be $50,000, $100,000, half a million, a million, you know. But that quantum, as you kind of work through family who know you best, (laughs) to your friends, to your friends of friends, to your friends and friends of friends, uh, is often quite a journey for many people. And I think it's a painful uh, journey. Yeah. Mm. And you brought up the point about, is it a tech startup like 10x in 10 years? Or is it like a cafe they're opening? I mean, it's, it's a very different story, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. For, the, for the cafe, if they're running a, a restaurant or something, then yeah, maybe friends and family, it's a starting point. Yeah. yeah. As, as a VC, have you heard of any horror stories from the founders who, who raised funds from friends and family and things really didn't work out well? Yeah, often actually. Um, And I think it's a very um, common because the truth is almost every founder for both types of businesses, uh, VC backable slash uh, with ambition to become a unicorn or even a lifestyle business, I think there's a real dynamic where everyone's a first-time founder often. um, And so they often don't necessarily understand what is the best parameters for what they're trying to build. And what that means is that they're not necessarily thoughtful about, say, the legal contracts that it is, it is a legal agreement, even if it's your family or friends. It is actually a fiduciary responsibility of yours because you're saying, I'm going to do this and therefore I need Y cash. And sometimes it's not necessarily clear from the founder side because they think they're executing about what they promise, mm. but it's not necessarily clear. And then family and friends get frustrated, they get angry, get emotional, which is very fair. Or vice versa, you know, the founder has been clear, but because it's not documented, then there are claims by the family and friends to be like, you know, I deserve more. or And this even is even in the best case scenario where the company is successful, right? Because everybody wants a share of it. You know, what happens, the yeah. truth is most companies fail, right? I mean, heck, if you even look at VC-backed companies, 95% of companies will fail. The system is designed for 95% of the startups that to not do well. And I think when the money goes to zero, then I think it can be a very difficult situation for founders who obviously are going through the loss and grief of losing the business they've been building. But also I think it's a very personal, emotional and financial pain for whoever chose to invest in that uh, initial friends and family round. Mm. So yeah. can I say that whether it's friends and family or VCs, you should treat them all as investors, right? They get mm. all the investor updates. You should sign up all the agreements right from mm. the start. Mm. So how should you structure as a founder? How should you structure it such that you, know, you protect yourself from such horror stories? You know, I think the first is, you know, self-awareness about what you're building. And if you're clear about whether you're building more of a a lifestyle or cash flow business versus a VC-backed business. Mm -hmm. And I'll talk about the second category more because I think that's um, an increasingly common path uh, that's viable for Southeast Asians and Singaporeans to do. Mm. And a lifestyle Um, cash flow business would mean something like a... Yeah, you can say a cafe, a cafes. bookstore, yeah. okay. uh, but something that you see, you know, even as a cleaning business, you imagine that, you know, mm. step-wise, a uh, chronological way. I think for that, obviously, normally, you know, people are buying a normal share, you know, percentage of the shareholdings. There's a relatively fair price that you hopefully set and you don't sell too much of the company, for example. But the truth is, you know, your access to capital is a function of demand and supply, right? You know, supply in terms of capital, how well off your network is, and demand, right, which is in that sense, like how much capital do you need and how good are you at fund- fundraising for your friends and family? So, you know, those quantums we've seen, you know, people have a very robust debate, which is like, is this cafe worth, before it begins, X million dollars or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And it can be very emotional. And I think it's a very tough conversation. Yeah, how do you evaluate? I mean, both parties are going to have different point of view about it, right? Yeah, and I think that's where I think on the the good thing about the VC pathway is that uh, there's a lot of mechanisms these days that honestly kick the can down the road mm-hmm. at one level, but also I think let more informed people make that representation and valuation later. So what I mean by that is that if you look at um, venture capital or VC-backed startups, what 
the instrument that founders normally use is they use something called a safe note or convertible debt. Uh, but what it fundamentally says is that, you know, we put the money in and there will be a valuation exercise that will be done in the next two years, uh, for example. And the price of that will be set then in the future. Mm. And between now and then, the price that we have right now will be a function of a discount versus that future. Mm. So, for example, we don't know whether this magic box that has something like we don't know value is, we don't know it's worth yeah. $100 it's or a million dollars. We don't yeah, know, right? Box, yeah. It's a black box, mm. right? And because it's a VC-backed startup, he has the promise to be a million dollars. Unlike normal lifestyle business, it's either $100, $150. So the variance is very low. Mm. But because the variance is high between 100 versus a million dollars, then the instrument basically says, when this box is opened up in two years, I will be able to earn 20% or 30% or 10% more with my cash check in terms of value versus the future. So in two years, my money check today and the money that comes in two years will all be converted at the same time. Mm. And that's, yeah. that's called a safe note or a convertible debt. They, yeah. they mean the same thing? Yeah, they, they are interchangeably? Some, yeah. They are relatively interchangeable. Okay. Safe is a form of convertible debt, uh, which is my founder friendly, but not all convertible debt is a form of safe, right? Okay. Ding, ding. Safe note stands for Simple Agreements for Future Equity. S-A-F-E. Simple Agreements for Future Equity. These notes are documents that act as a legally binding promise to allow an investor to purchase a specified number of shares for an agreed-upon price at some point in the future. I mean, whatever I know is from shark tanks. <laughs> and the sharks will say, oh, I'll buy a business for 20% at this amount. So yeah. does it work like that? Equity model in which I invest X amount of money for X amount of equity? No. Yeah, friends and family would normally, and I rec normally recommend a safe note because mm. I think it's safer for everybody because you don't want family to have bought in too cheap. Neither would you want them to have bought in too expensive, right? Mm. Because you're buying too cheap, they feel left out and you feel bad about it. If it was too expensive, then you feel you lost control, you lost equity shareholding, they mm. felt it's unfair. So I think a convertible debt helps a lot. Uh, for Shark Tank, unfortunately, I think that's how most people think friends and family are because it's a show designed for friends and family. So the people who are watching Shark Tank are people who are like, oh, I too can be a shark. Yeah. Such a <laughs> um, I think there's an unfortunate reality where I think it's done a tremendous job educating people about the fact that People next door, your neighbor, your friend can set up a business that's amazing, right? And spotting talent is a great exercise. Mm. At the same time, I think I've noticed that sometimes friends and family take away the wrong parameters because these Shark Tank folks are not friends and family and you should not be acting like them. These are billionaires or millionaires. They're acting, frankly, as investors, acting more like venture capitalists and they pretend <laughs> to have that, you know, some of them have the more of their aura, some of them more adversarial. And so I think it's a shame if you as a friend or family are taking on that same aggressive uh, stance as a Shark Tank judge or uh, investor. Okay, yeah. so if you take the flip side of the table, if you are a friend and family, someone is coming up to you. So what, what should your considerations be? And you mentioned you don't have to be like a shark because that's literally your friend asking you for help with his or her business. So mm. how, how should you come in? What should your approach be? Yeah, and I think that's where you know the awkward reality and I mentioned this earlier, is that you have to suddenly make an assessment about your drinking buddy, <laughs> your oh, yeah. old army buddy, <laughs> your sister or brother, right? Brother I mean, law. your uncle. Yeah. I mean, so you're making this evaluation, you just hang out with them for, you know, some holiday or Christmas. Oh. And suddenly you, you have to sit back and you say, wait, I need to reevaluate this and say, mm. okay, you know, I like them as a person. I'll trust them, my kids, you know. They're good to have but a drink with. They're good to have a drink with. Yeah. And you're like, wait a moment, like, and you have that make assessment, which is, is this the business that makes sense, right? And that's one level. And the second one is, do I trust this person to make that business happen? And those are two very separate questions, right? So first of all is, yeah, does this business make sense, right? Um, and that's a tough one because the truth is when a friend or family comes in, you know, they may be doing stuff like, you know, I was, you know, I literally have a friend and he is doing immunotherapy for cancer, right? He's building... <laughs> gene ter uh, and immunotherapy basically to trick your body's immune system to attack cancer. The science is difficult. The path is hard. Funding is difficult for that kind of startup. But the truth of the matter is that if he makes it happen, mm -hmm. it's definitely a billion dollar company yeah. because nobody wants to have cancer and everybody is going to face cancer at some point yeah, of time. It's so, help people. Mm -hmm. and it's going to help people. So, but the thing is, you suddenly have to say to yourself like, wait, how much do I understand about the science? How much do I understand about the business? How much do I understand about what the market is, right? And that may not, that may be very non-obvious to be honest, right? I mean, 
you look at Facebook, right? Mark Zuckerberg basically got money from his dad and he was basically saying, here's a social network for you university kids. And so mm. you can sit down and yourself and be like, eh. is that going to be? Is that, yeah, you think about it today. It's like, imagine yeah. if someone comes up to you and say like, you know, I want to create a video ad where people can scroll for fun. Yeah. And you're like, eh. and then, you know, 10 years later, there's TikTok, right? And you're like, wait, there's a lot of video apps. There's YouTube, there's Facebook, there's Google. So I think it's really non-obvious. And so the ability to assess that really helps you there. And I think self-awareness, right? I mean, you know, are you an investor by background? Are you an operator in that field? Do you have experience in that domain? Are there friends you can ask to learn about that space? I think it's a very important one. And the second, you know, below the iceberg, below the waterline, is really like, do you trust this person to solve that problem? And sometimes people use it as a proxy. What I mean by that is like, oh, this person is super capable, super smart, super trustworthy. And so I don't understand the business, but I trust him or her as a person. I think that's not a bad proxy, I think. Mm -hmm. But I think it can go badly as well sometimes because they can be earnest and smart and capable, but... The truth is they haven't done homework or they got too excited or it's actually a lot harder than they think it is, right? Mm. And so the proxy may be adequate for you trusting the person, but not adequate for it to be the outcome. And the worst case, and I think the huge, the huge issue that at the end of the day is, you know, it's very, very hard to cognitively say something like, oh, I really trust this person to take care of my kid. <laughs> and, but I don't trust this person to run the business and, mm-hmm. and give $20,000, right? Because it's not easy. I mean, it's not even about a person. It's just fundamentally saying like, it's not like saying whether this person can do well in an exam or not, right? You know, which is mm-hmm. a binary basis right? between 100 to zero. It's literally an exam where in a VC back world, 95% is going to fail. It's like, you know, you know, like, and luck plays a part. Yeah, and luck it. plays a part too. And so I think it's a very fair piece to be like, hey, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not making a decision to spend one hour of time, which is a, a knob thing. But it's almost like a binary thing, which is like you either succeed or you fail, right? And so I think that's a tricky conversation to have, not just with them, mm. in a way that preserves the relationship over the time, but also a tricky conversation to have internally. Learning how to differentiate the person as a businessman as as compared to him or her being your friend. Yeah, yeah. it's tough. And how do you even say deliver the news, right? It's like, you know, I like you as a friend, but... I don't trust you as a businessman. Mm, That's awkward. Good luck with that. I mean, yeah, it's half. I mean, it's honestly easier to do it. for you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the truth is often the opposite is easier, right? Mm. It's easier to be like, oh, I like you as a businessman. I don't like you as a person. <laughs> I mean, that's the most common <laughs> at least, thing. At least right? like, you can make money from me, right? Yeah, exactly. And then people <laughs> do that all the time. You know, like they go in public markets and they invest mm. in, you know, companies. They look at Shark Tank and you're like, oh, this guy makes money, even though I don't like the person, right? And so I think there's an interesting dynamic where um, I think it can be a very co- difficult conversation mm. to have. How do you assess? Have you ever said no to a friend and family? Yeah, I have. And, you know, I think the way to have the conversation, frankly, is... I think to share and really keep on the business. So say like, hey, you know, putting aside our history, et cetera, like here's my questions about the business and having that fair and open discussion to be like, hey, I want to really hear what you are thinking about it. I want to hear what you need help on. I want to know what we should work on together if this was to happen. And I think in that discussion, the process, what it should come out is at the end of that entire process, be it one hour, two hours, five hours, 10 hours, both sides already know what the answer is going to be mm. because of the way that you have been thoughtful about asking questions. And, you know, you almost want it to be like, to the point where you're like, yeah, you know, the other person understands why you're not investing rather than just a decision that you're not investing. Um, okay. That could um, be useful information for them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because, you know, it, you know, it's useful information for them to maybe improve their pitch at one level. Or it could be useful information for them to improve or tweak. The business model itself. Exactly. Yeah. Or maybe it's useful feedback for them to say, you know what, this is not the right idea. I'm going to think of a different idea or do something different, right? Um, and I think that can be a very um, helpful conversation both ways. Mm, I'm right? sure you get a lot of this because you're a VC yourself, your friends and family, you're going to be their top of mind <laughs> when they want to raise some funds. Always top of mind. And I think it's a privilege, right? Because it means that I think people trust you and people think that you have the capital to, to do that and people want you to be part of the team. And so I think when people ask you, it's very much a gift of, because it, it's tough to ask for capital, right? Uh, you know, I've been in that shoe, uh-huh. right? It's like, it's like, oh, I need to ask for money. And so, but actually you're also gifting them with the opportunity to invest in you. Uh, and vice versa, I think that when someone gives you the gift of being vulnerable, 
for capital, but also being brave enough to try to build something new. I think you have to be a good steward in being kind. So it doesn't mean that you're not unwise. It doesn't mean that you're not being savvy. Uh, it's just that you can do all those things about being thoughtful about the business model while also being kind to the person, right? And the truth is, hopefully you also are just as kind to a stranger asking you for capital. But the truth is, um, the awkward reality is that um, you have a pre-existing relationship with friends and family that you don't have with a stranger, right? Mm -hmm. And so the stranger often will have an easy come, easy go because there's no hard feelings dynamic. But for friends and family, it can feel personal. And so Mm -hmm. being kind is really big. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So after you've done asking the right questions, you've done your due diligence and you decided to invest. How do you, can I use the word negotiate when it comes to your friends and family? Yeah, so how, how do you like negotiate a deal? Oh, I mean, that's a good one. You know, I always remember that I had a good friend in Boston and, um, you know, he was a neighbor of mine. We're both Singaporeans, founders. And I started first and I'm in a building, etc. And I remember for him, he was very much like, at some point he was like, Oh, I'm closing the round, the financial round. I was like, wait, I want to invest. I was like, <laughs> what? You're already oh, closing? You're yet? already closing? <laughs> like, I was like, well. <laughs> yeah, he's a friend. Uh-huh. Yeah, but I really respected him too, mm-hmm. right? And I, he'll be someone that I would ask him for advice and he would ask me for advice. And so I respected him and I liked him as a person. And so he was like, oh, I was very paise. You know, I was very embarrassed to ask you for money. Oh, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, I don't okay. want to ask for friends. I, I want a family. I want to ask from strangers. And I was like, whoa, 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 let me get in. And so I managed to kind of get some allocation. He did me a solid, you know, got some allocation for me. Oh, so came in. your reputation actually, in this case, it didn't help you, right? It didn't help me. As a friend, he, he feels pious to ask you. Although yeah, you're yeah. the most obvious person that he should yeah, be asking. Yeah, yeah. And you're actually interested to invest. Yeah, yeah, Okay, yeah. okay. And, uh, you know, I was just like, okay, okay. You know, I have to do, right? Mm. Uh, and then, you know, obviously it was a small check, you know, so something that I felt was within my budget and my capital uh, liquidity. And it's... Uh, so how does it work? Out. It's the last round and, you know, it's a small amount. Like. Yeah, because, you know, you know, a certain amount is raising, let's just say, a right. million dollars. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's collected money from all these other people and professionals. And then he's like, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> he just has some space left for you, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it was, um, yeah, in that case, for example, I followed the terms because there are other professional investors ahead of me with much larger checks. And so they get to decide parameters and the control rights and the financial terms of the round. And I'm just following. So in this case, I was like more of a follower. Sometimes it's the opposite. You're like the first check that someone to for someone else. Yeah. So I do valuations and and I think that's very tricky because mm-hmm. uh, what you can say maybe is like and this often happens is I'm willing to put some capital and I'll follow along with someone else, a more professional investor to set the terms and so so forth. Or sometimes the founder already has a point of view and they pretty much set the terms right of the round and you get evaluated not just as the company and the person but you get to evaluate whether the deal is attractive, right? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes the truth is if the founder sets a very attractive deal terms if it's a lifestyle business a cash flow business if it's a business that you're not sure about maybe the deal terms are attractive enough to you like yeah you know i'll still go in but it's um, not an easy process and the awkward reality is that you know most investors should be in public equities mm. <laughs> most people should have enough you know capital for rainy day fund and insurance and you know cover your rent or mortgage and hopefully when you've done all of that then you have some you know sophistication inherent to be able to make that piece. And I think that when you do that investment as well, being thoughtful to be like, hey, you know, um, really being thoughtful about the quantum, really being something in an, an amount that you can lose. Um, and it's not easy to say, mm-hmm. but I think it's a very high chance of failure, right? I said 95% chance if you're a professional VC looking at startups. So your friends and family, you know, you're not a professional. You may not be looking at thousands of startups in the same, you know, hierarchy. You're not a VC, right? So then yeah. maybe your odds are worse. Maybe it's only 1% for a VC-backed startup, right? Um, of course, you know, the, what the reward is supposed to be is that 
if it's five percent or one percent, you know, the returns are not just hundred x; it's like thousand or ten thousand x. But I think that's really, I think, the fundamental struggle for a lot of folks, and so uh, it's not for everyone. So definitely, kind of normally size your first checks to be quantum's that you feel ready to, um, you know, lose or not have. Yeah. So one thing to be thoughtful about is when do you expect the investment to be able to bear fruit or mature as an investment? Uh, so for example, you know, obviously if you're on the stock markets, you can invest in an ETF today and then there's enough liquidity often that if there are gains the next day, then you can extract that out, right? And so it's a function of both the understanding of when the underlying value or asset goes up as a gain, and also the ease of being able to pull that out. So what's interesting is that when you invest in your friends or family's uh, business, you have to be thoughtful about when you expect these gains to happen and also the ease of being able to get them out. So for example, if you're investing in a friends or family you know, cash flow business, then often what you're doing is that you're investing in them and maybe within a year, even a half a year, they could already be returning profitable cash flow or two years or three years. And then often you're being paid dividends or some level of cash flow back. So that investment as a result is much easier for you to understand because like I put in $10,000 and hopefully I'll get a share and maybe I'll get $1,000 per year starting from two years out. You know, that's the plan there. However, for technology startups are very different because when you're putting money in, as often as the first or second round of capital, what's happening is that you're actually saying, I'm expecting this company to become a billion dollar company within the next 10 years. And that's what their goal ambition is. And what that means is that, again, there's a 95% chance of failure along that pathway. And on top of that, is that the gains that happen at each stage are all paper gains. So they're valued at a million dollars, 10 million, 100 million, a billion dollars. But they may not be generating free cash flow because those that cash is being reinvested back in the business. So you're not going to receive dividends and you're only going to receive, hopefully, a probability adjusted chance of that paper valuation being unlocked at an exit in 10 or 12 or 15 years, right? And so suddenly, you know, you, you, know, you suddenly think to yourself, okay, at level one, probability of failure, 90 to 95%. Two is um, there's very rapid gains, but they're all paper. And so there's not going to be distributed to me in the meanwhile. And therefore, there are paper gains until then. And I can't use paper gains to, you know, uh, go to the eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Eat or go to the bank or mm. get a loan or these, do these things. It's just locked up there forever for, you know, this entire time. And thirdly, the exit can only happen at a qualified uh, liquidity event, which is often an IPO or trade sale, which happened in 10 or 15 years. And so, you know, even as having that rapid thing, you know, actually maybe a shorter term financial instrument may be a better uh, return on investment for you personally um, than, you know, this fast growth but highly illiquid investment is. Um, so I think it kind of doubles back on our earlier point, which is that when you invest in a friend's technology startup, you should expect the baseline to be zero because in the worst case scenario, it does go to zero, which is also the base case for 1995%. But in the best case scenario, it's a 10 or 100 or 1,000 X multiple but it's all paper for 10 to 15 years, right? Which means that you're like in your 30s and you're going to see that in your 45, yeah. right? You know, that's forever. Mm, there's this term which is raising money from the three Fs. Yeah. Friends, family, and fools. So the way I interpret it is that, I mean, it's kind of like a joke because, you know, you raise money from your friends, family first and they are the fools <laughs> because they're the ones who believe in you because they know you personally. Like, do you think that's true? Do you think there's some truth to this statement? Friends, family... And fools? Well, that's a good question. Because anyone can be a fool, right? You know, the founder can be a fool, the friend can be a fool, the family can be a fool. But I think what it's trying to describe is a certain sense that it's easy to get capital from friends, families, and fools, right? So what I mean by that is your parents, or your siblings, or your extended family, they're all going to put in a check. So family is an easy one to get some quantum, right? And friends who know you for some time, it's easy to get that capital. Even easier a small amount, a, right? A small amount, right? 1,000, 2,000, and it all stacks up. Mm. And the fools are like, you know, people who are like, it's crazy for them to invest in you because they don't know you, they don't know the business, and they may not necessarily be sophisticated, right? So I think that's a very um, mercenary way. I think sometimes mm. think about that capital because it's really talking about the easiness of getting capital. Yeah. But I think from, uh, you take, take a step out, you know, I think at the end of the day, as a founder, you want to take capital from people who are going to help you get there. And you want to make them money because by making them money, 
you're also making money for yourself, right? Because a successful business means that they get a high return. And so I think the tricky part is you have to talk to family and not take advantage of that relationship and just be say, these are the risks, these are the rewards, this is what I'll do and this is what I'll try to steward that dynamic. Uh, to your friends, I think you also have that same level of rigor. And for fools or strangers, you would, should also have the same level of integrity and uh, frankness about the risks and the rewards, right? And I think what that hopefully cause is like, you know, instead of, uh, you know, an X axis, like friends, family, and fools, you kind of also have the Y axis, mm -hmm. which is like, are they sophisticated and helpful uh, okay. versus not, right? And, you know, that category of sophisticated, helpful friends, family, and strangers um, can really be aligned with your vision of the company and also avoid control disputes on the road, financial disputes on the road, but also accelerate the business in a meaningful way. You know, there's this saying about um, lending friends money and I'm not talking about the context of building a business, but more like your friend wants to borrow one to two K from you and, and they tell you, okay, if you want to borrow, lend money to your friend, take it that never getting it back. So do you think that should be the same mindset that should be applied, you know, when you invest in a friend's or family's business? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I think so. Odds of failure are high. So, like, you know, I put the money in. Okay, don't expect to get it back. If it works yeah. out, it works out. I mean, I think the difference is that when I normally lend a friend for money, sometimes it's like because, you know, they have cash flow requirements, right? Like they need a mortgage or they can't meet because they are going through a job transition or they have, you know, health bills to deal with, right? And so... I think lending people cash is almost predictable. It's like you kind of know what the salary is at a high level in ballpark. And you know that the cash requirements are also um, there, right? Uh, and it's relatively predictable. So that conversation, the parameters are more inbound. And so I think that's why you kind of say like, you know, you may not get it back, right? What's interesting about investment is that there's an element of greed, right? And fear of missing out, right? So what I mean by that is there's greed in the sense that you think that this person can make a lot of money, right? And you don't want to miss out. And then sometimes you hear that other people are putting money in. So you suddenly have a fear of missing out. You're like, oh, this person or my, his uncle invested and this big shot invested. Now I want to get in. So there's a fear of missing out as well. So there's an interesting conflict here a little bit that happens internally because you're never going to have, you know, if you're helping a friend, I think it's a form of charity and I think support. But I think that greed and formal uh, is very unique when investing in a friend and I think can blur some of the rational heuristics that you have. And what I would say is that if you have the self-awareness, understand that you are an amateur investor, I would lean much more and advise you to really be what we just talked about, you know, assume you're going to lose the capital and have that same treasure as you would lending to a friend, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're more sophisticated and you have seen lots of different opportunities and you're able to compare them, then I would advise you to be okay with leaning in and doubling down on that. Yeah. Okay. So let's say if some experience investing in friends and families, how does one become a, a VC? How do you get into the scene? Like, do you need a huge sum of money? Well, yeah. I mean, that's one way to do it, right? I mean, <laughs> if you have yeah. millions of dollars, you can be a VC. <laughs> Just or say, super I want to invest. <laughs> People look for you. I mean, you know, yeah. that's the way of the world, right? I mean, right. You know, then the, the real estate developers look for you. Everyone the insurance agents for look for you. Yeah. Old friends your from private, Your, old school, your yeah. old school friends, yeah. your private wealth manager comes for you. So, I mean, the truth of the matter is that once you have millions of dollars, you can be a VC or you can be a public markets investor or trader, right? So, I think there's so many ways to, um, you know, put your money to work once you have that. So yeah, I think that's one way to yeah, be a VC. I, I just saw this yeah. description for a course. I think it's an online class and then they meet up like several times a week. And yeah, it's part of becoming a VC, right? So mm. you teach how to assess and all that. I guess that's one way of getting your foot in the door. Right. I'm just wondering, like, let's say, let's say you're sick of the public market. <laughs> you just want to become a VC and, you know, get into, you know, rooms with, Pitches and then decide what to invest in. Uh, how, how does somebody get into that? Yeah. Well, um, there are two major paths. The first major path, of course, is join a venture capital firm, right? And so these are companies that are always looking for bright, hungry talent who is passionate about you know, technology, right? And willing to look at it from a deal perspective. And what that means is that they're always looking for junior talents, associates, analysts, um, or other teammates in the middle or back office. And those are great opportunities for you to join as a fresh graduate 
or you know a career switcher to be able to join and get exposure to that right of course the tricky part is that these organizations are selective um, so you have to do the legwork in terms of having the expertise uh, having shown that you're hungry for the job being able to demonstrate that you're able to source close and do the correct due diligence and judgment on the deal uh, which maybe take up the form of investment memos that you write or public thought leadership that you do. So these are the ways that you kind of like show that you're hireable by these things. And once you come in, then the pathway, they'll help you get there, right? Which is if they identify that you are good, they'll promote you. If they identify that you're not so good, then they'll ask you to stay longer and learn more or you end up switching to a different career or a different VC fund. The other path, frankly, is to be a founder, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're a founder and you're part of that 5% that does well, that builds a billion dollar company or even a hundred million dollar company, then the truth of the matter, like you said, is it goes back to path one, path zero, which is have millions <laughs> of dollars, money. having money, and then you yeah. can do it yourself. But also I think all the VC funds and all everybody else is looking for that kind of talent to come in um, to switch because you know you're, you want to take a break or it's no longer your season to be building and operating, but you want to invest in the next generation of founders who are there. And because you have that hands-on experience yourself as a founder, um, you're not only better able to understand why it takes to build a business, you also be more helpful uh, to the founder who's building a business to therefore increase the odds of their success. And also you have better judgment because you know what are the real levels for success from your perspective in that vertical and in that stage. So I think that's how um, you can do it. One is have millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Two is join a VC fund by demonstrating that you have the hunger and passion uh, to do that. Or thirdly is be a founder yourself and then after you complete a successful exit, yeah. transition to VC. Yeah. yeah. Do you think having founded businesses makes you a better VC? Is it is it good to have? Is it a must have? Mm. So I'll get a little more advanced here. Uh, the short answer is that if you did a quantitative analysis of founder operator experience to investor experience at a macro level, um, the on average, there's no difference. In other words, it is not an advantage at, in aggregate to be uh, a founder operator at the earlier late stage across when you average that out. That being said, if you actually zoom in closer, a founder operator experience is correlated with a different strategy, right? So the, you know, it's like in the markets, right? There are multiple strategies to win in the market and the returns <laughs> come out to, oh, negative, you know, and if you're an active fund manager, okay. uh, you know, yeah. on average. But the truth is there are top quarter funds, uh, second quarter funds, and they are both outperforming the market. Yeah, yeah. But on, on average, everybody's underperforming. If you don't uh, lose ACM. money, you're actually outperforming. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. so, so I think what we see is that founder and operators tend to be more on the early stage. So they're focusing, for example, on pre-seed, seed, series A, maybe even series B. And they tend to be associated with more active help. Uh, so they were looking at scouting talent that is not necessarily the most strongest right now or the hottest, uh, but has the capability and the patience to coach them and help them get to the next level. So there's a lot of hair in the deal, as they say. So there's a lot of things that doesn't feel right, but with the right help and coaching and expertise, we can kind of get you there. Whereas I think a more classic investor mindset tends to be correlated with later stage deals, Series B, Series C, Series D, Series E. And these are growth equity stages where primarily you're analyzing these companies based on um, their financial models because they already achieved product market fit. They've already raised $20 million. If the founder already has coaching and is you know ready to rock and roll. Uh, so you, you know, you're not really there to coach the founder anymore or figure out whether it's product market fit. You're really there to give them the jet fuel to there. And so having more experience in capital markets and liquidity is more helpful for this later stage of capital. So that is how I think founder and operator experience helps you. I think it helps you be a better investor, especially in early stage startups. But it um, has an opportunity cost associated with having the investment banking or deal maker expertise that you need for later stage growth rounds. Yeah, because it's all different skill sets. I mean, running a business, you, you could be a, a good businessman, but you might not be a, a good allocator of capital. Right. And yeah. being able to identify good businesses to invest in and to help the founders. It's all different skill sets. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Hey, I hope you've learned something useful today. And I truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconuts. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated, and discussed. Join our community Telegram group. Follow us on our socials. Sign up for our weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description. 
If you love us and want to help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. For more information, check out thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead. Stay tuned next week. And remember, personal finance can be chill, clear and sustainable for all.
What has been your best and worst investment? And I think this question is very interesting for you because you're a VC. <laughs> and well, the investment need not be financial. Yeah. No, I think the worst investment I've made was, I think, in a, uh, unfortunately, in I think a startup uh, where there were two co-founders, just a strong team. And I think just had a really, um, I think, strong conviction around them as a team. And I think it was a really a big moonshot about what it was technology to be building. And I think at a deep level, I just knew that the business model was going to be very difficult for the go-to-market. But I just l- liked them so much as people that I just went in. And I think I just didn't give that enough weight, uh, honestly. And so long story short was, you know, it went to zero. Mm. Uh, but I think worse than that, frankly, was that I think um, they kind of closed without informing me, right? So I had to find out via LinkedIn announcement of one of the employees. And I was like, okay, I didn't get hits up. I didn't get a transition. Okay. And so I don't think it was bad because I think I invested in uh, the team because I felt like it was going to be important for society. Um, and I didn't actually have an issue of losing the capital because, again, I put a capital in amount that I expected to lose at some level. So I don't think it was an issue in that way. But I think it was just disappointing that uh, the founders didn't communicate that in a formal way, right? Or give me a heads up about the issues there. And so I wasn't able to help. But also, I also felt like I wasn't in the loop, right? And I think that was the worst investment, not necessarily just in terms of capital, because it went to zero, which I expect most of my investments to do. But also because it just left... Um, you know, a sad yeah. taste in my mouth, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, best investment I've made, I think I'm happy to share too. I think the best non-financial investment I made was in uh, my podcast. Uh, so yeah. Brave Southeast Asia Tech mm-hmm. podcast, uh, Uh And I think it was great because, you know, I love listening to podcasts and I remember hearing to myself at some point like, hey, all the folks I'm listening to are either like American yeah. males so which is kind of weird. But also, I don't, I'm not hearing anything about Southeast Asia. There's nothing that's really inspirational or thoughtful about the leadership journey. And so for many years, I was just kind of like waiting for that podcast to happen. And mm. pandemic happened and I was like stuck at home. And I was like, okay, why don't I just try this, right? And it's you. Yeah. Turns out I, can, I get to listen to the podcast while I'm making it. And I get to ask the questions, right? Like just like you are. Um, and I think it's just been tremendous to grow that to like, over you know, tens of thousands of followers and you know, all these things. But I think it was just very nice to just be able to have that curation. And I think um, at the end of the day, you know, I think some people are like, oh, is the podcast about you being brave? And I always tell people, it's like, well, it's not that I am brave. It's more like the podcast is because I want to be brave mm. and I want to interview people who I feel are brave and I want to feel braver, right? You know, And so there's an interesting dynamic there um, that I'm often thinking about. And the book is yeah. a natural extension of that podcast. Exactly, exactly. And uh, on the financial side, I thought that uh, another financial investment that I made was what I call uh, in uh, this uh, founder and she is uh, building at home testing for uh, pollutants um, in your body uh, via urine. And so long story short, it's kind of like 23 Me equivalent for uh, pollutants, right? So, you know, you go to the washroom, you put it in a, in a sample, you send it off to the lab by mail, and then they kind of like do that testing um, for metals and plastics and things like that. And I, I thought it was just such an amazing thing because the truth is, it, the science is hard because historically urine samples don't travel well over the mail. I mean, you go through the sun, the snow, the delay, you know, it's just, you know, it, it deteriorates pretty quick. So there's a science component to it. Mm. But I think what I was really inspired by was just like, you know, the fact that, you know, so many of us are getting poisoned every day mm. by the stuff around us. And the people who are most poisoned by, you know, the toxic site or uh, the heavy metals and so forth, your pregnant mother with a child, so, so far, these are often people who have the least access to this because the truth is you can get it now. You just have to go to the doctor, get a prescription or order. Then you have to go to the lab, spend an hour waiting or two hours there. And then you wait for the lab results to come back in a week or whatever it is. And then you get someone to call you. And the cost of that, not just in cash, but in terms of uh, time, basically makes it only available for the upper class, right? Mm. And so for her to really have that vision to make it 10x or 100x cheaper in terms of time and money um, means that so many more people and the people who are often 
living the closest, for example, or getting poisoned, um, will have the self-awareness and the knowledge to act on having too much BPA in your blood or too much heavy metal or arsenic or mercury um, is amazing, right? Because then suddenly people who are unwell and have been confused about why they're unwell can take action. Uh, regulators can take action because now they know that lots of people are um, getting poisoned, for example. And I just think to myself, like, you know, this is money I put in in her because I think she made a science work. But if she can really make this so much more cheaper for so many folks, I think there's a huge amount of ripple effects mm. into the community right from there. And so I think, I think if it makes it work, it's a great financial investment, obviously, because everybody will want to do that at home instead of traveling to a lab. But I think it would be a great uh, social investment, actually, because I think, you know, you can imagine, you know, all the generational change, right, that happens as a result, you know, just from someone avoiding toxins will impact the child, mm. which will impact their children, which will impact their children. I mean, I think the ripple effects are tremendous for this generation and the next seven generations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. seeing not just the financial aspects of it. Yeah. yeah seeing how you can help people. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. What's something under $100 that you spent on that has been a game changer for you? Oh, so many things that, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, uh, below a hundred dollars, the life changer. Um, you know, I think the, the, the game changer for me for under a hundred bucks, honestly, um, has been, um, a microphone, right? A good microphone. Uh, and what I mean by that is just like, you for know, the for the podcast yeah. initially, but uh, well, actually initially hmm. my first microphone I ever bought was under a hundred bucks. Uh, and it was for, because, you know, um, that dual use of work at home and therefore eventually a podcast. But I think the world has changed dramatically over the past few years from the pandemic, right? I yeah. think before that, Zoom was kind of happening once in a while. Mm. And now I think, honestly, you know, on some days, like 80 or 90% of my meetings are online, right? And what I mean by that is that so much of our meetings that we would have had, the first coffee chat, et cetera, is this, or even business travel, is now happening over video conference. And I, I think it's a shame to, on my end, see so many founders or observe them, unfortunately, um, not pitching well, not because they're they are not passionate or not because they're not charismatic or thoughtful about the business, but because they have a bad mic, you know, a bad headset, right? <laughs> yeah, and what so a waste. There's all ways, yeah. right? It's the background noise, yeah. you know, the street is there. And it's kind of awkward reality because, you know, you and I know that if I met an investor or if I met a business partner, I would dress up nice, I would mm. shave, I would do all these things that cost me time and money. Uh, and so I think, uh, but suddenly we go on our video call and, you know, we're not setting up right. We don't have the right lighting. We don't have the right sound. Um, and, you know, there's a invisible text that happens all the time because, you know, mm. everyone's kind of like, weirded out by the weird clipping noise or the weird background noise or these other things. Yeah, and you could get a really good mic for less than $100 or, or oh. about $100. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this kind of equipment used to be out of reach, but yeah. it's just so commonplace nowadays. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, they last forever, right? Yeah, so, they're good. Unlike, you know, buying a, a sports jacket, et cetera, that's going to last you five years, mm -hmm. all right? You know, uh, and get stains, et cetera. A good mic can be with you for 10 or 20 years, right? You know, yeah. or 30 years. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you look at that, amortization or depreciation of that ex expense, I don't think it's a huge investment at all. Mm, even if you're not yeah. pitching, you're just an employee and you have to go for online meetings, well, you just get a good mic and yeah. it makes you so much better. Exactly. Yeah. Something that nerd out effect, you know, something that lets you have that cardioid pattern so yeah. that it picks up you, <laughs> right? Mm. And, you know, um, doesn't pick up, you know, your kids, your pets, your cats, dogs, back the window. And I think that really gets you a, a great opportunity to be presentable, mm. but also present at your best, right? And you have the confidence that you're presenting your best. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, you listen to podcasts as well. What's one place that you learn from that you would want to recommend to our listeners? It could be a podcast, a book, a website, what have you. Now, I love this podcast called uh, Reboot.io. Uh, and what they are is that they are a coaching agency for uh, founders and VCs, right? In tech world, and they're based out of the U.S., and I had the benefit of being introduced to them because I had a great coach from them, and I still do, called Marty Janowitz. And I think he's been a tremendous executive coach over you know, the past uh, four years, right? Time flies indeed. Um, and, you know, he's part of this, uh, you know, he called it association, right, of group under Jerry Colonna, who's also a former venture capitalist. 
And he's built this tremendous uh, platform called um, Reboot.io. And that podcast really goes into him having these one-on-one coaching, but also deep and vulnerable conversations with these um, you know, titans, right? Mm. Um, or to-be titans, or crashed out of titans, you know, mm. founders and VCs. And um, I think that vulnerability is rare. Um, you know, I think there was a you know, tremendous episode recently about, and then all the coaches kind of gathered to talk a little bit about a midlife crisis, you know. And they were talking about how, you know, folks often encounter midlife crisis because, you know, they realize that they get to choose for the second half of their life what they didn't get to choose for their first half of their life. Because, you know, so much of it was predetermined by their school, by their teachers, by their parents. Family. Mm-hmm. And so that, yeah, the awareness of the mortality of your life kind of like backfills to today. And you're like, okay, now I, I have to choose or I should choose or, and I get to choose. And that dodging of that responsibility creates that crisis moment. And I just felt like they, they had such great books. They had such great feedback. And, you know, you know, what I got away from that episode, for example, was like, you know, like, there are so many rites and rituals that are associated from us to zero to 35, right? And what I mean by that is if you go back five generations ago, you were lucky to live till 35, right? You yeah. know? I mean, basically that meant that yeah. you... <laughs> you don't you, have a lifelong enough or a midlife crisis. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your, your midlife Mid- crisis was like 18. 16 or 18, <laughs> yeah. right? For them, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it literally like, you know, life was you know, geared around, you know, to be 35, man, you were successful because you not only mm. became 35, but you probably got to have a kid at the age of 16 or 18 and then raise that kid to 16 or 18 yourself, right? Yeah. And so, so much of our societal beliefs, our rights, our rituals, our, you know, around parenting, around school, university, graduation, marriage, all these things are really geared, if you think about it, to provide rites and rituals and ceremonies mm. for that first 35 years of your life. And then once you hit 35 or 40, your kids are kind of like, you know, graduating or something like that. Then suddenly you're like, you're out of runway, right? You know, you're suddenly out of the structure of society. And so you suddenly had to have the privilege, but the terrifying thing where you get to pick um, the life that your ancestors never got to choose, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, my grandfather died because he was a lumberjack and he didn't get medical care mm-hmm. in his mid-30s. And so now I'm as old as he is. Isn't that crazy? And he died because he couldn't afford medical care and a tree fell on him. But I get to suddenly now today get to pick an unlived life that he didn't get to have. Mm. And the truth is, it's a huge responsibility. Um, And I think that's why I think it makes, um, I think, a difficult journey for everybody to choose. But also I think it's a worthwhile privilege that you should choose as well as you you can get because... Uh, very few people across history ever got to choose this for millions of years um, uh, since the start of hum- humankind as a species. But also, if you look at the world today, not a lot of people don't get to choose that either. I mean, you mm. know, um, you know, half the world doesn't get to choose um, the same way you get to, to have a midlife crisis. Mm, and so, that's an interesting perspective yeah. on on why we have a midlife crisis. Yeah. You, you get to choose how the rest of your life looks like. Yeah, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity and it's a It's a burden. midlife opportunity, yeah. right? Because... Mm. You know, congratulations, you got, you get to pick a bonus life, you know, of 35 mm, okay. or 75 years or even heck, you know, you know, with the way science and healthcare is going, we could live to 120, 130, right? Yeah. And so, you know, the concept of retirement age of 70 or 75 or 80 is bonkers because... Um, it's living longer. Yeah, yeah, people don't know what to do with it, mm. understandably, because... No, we've never lived that long. We've never yeah. lived that long, right? <laughs> yeah. Think about it. Is that crazy? Like you know, you know, like like seventy years ago, two generations ago, effectively, we were in the middle of a war, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, it's just lucky to live, right? And now we have the privilege to live and be living in peace. So it's bonkers, yeah. Right. So yeah. these are the things that get you thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's always good to you know listen to more podcasts, read more books. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you so much. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.